This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Absent Saints and Cruel Caretakers, How Parents Shape Characters in Speculative Fiction, Part 2. That's right. We are back to talking about how to abuse children. Um, Or rather, (laughs) how to do it in fiction. (laughs) Yes, how to develop a character from that scenario. But that did not sound good for us at all. It did not sound good for us at all. So in the last episode, we talked about absent parents. We talked about neglectful parents. And we talked about selfish or narcissistic parents. Um, We are now, and excuse me for saying this, going to get a tiny little bit more hands-on. Um... (laughs) This sounds so wrong. I'm so sorry. It really does. Um, There may be some black humour in this episode. Once again, if this is this is upsetting material for you, then you know take it carefully. And we do recommend that you check out the first episode before listening to this one. Yeah, as I said, um, we're going to be using humour here to kind of get through the episode because it is going to be quite. You know, we're getting into some into some painful territory here. Um, so yeah, just be warned, um, and please take everything we say with a, a grain of salt if we're making silly comments, in particular me, because this is how I cope. So, um, we are going to talk, uh, we're going to start by talking a little bit about grudging or unwilling parents. Yeah, um, there's something really pernicious about this. Um, I know a few people in real life who grew up knowing that their parents didn't want them as in their parents had literally told them this and let's just say they did not turn into the most well-adjusted people because I think it's quite difficult to get past that that sense of oh yeah my pet I was unwanted in my own house Mm -hmm. so um yeah that's where we are now we're looking at that in fiction and and how that's that's represented and how that helps develop character so um with a grudging or unwilling parent, the child is left in no uncertainty that they are not wanted or are even resented by the parental figures. So once again, our old favourite chestnut, um, Dursley's <laughs> and Harry Potter. Yeah, back to this little golden nugget. Um, they really made sure that Harry knew that he, was, he wasn't wanted, that he was there um, because they had to have him there and they were going to do the bare minimum for what they had to do. What always gets me, and it's it's a, one of these things that people forget about, is that in the books, he starts out in the cupboard under the stairs. And I really want you to think about that, because we all know it, but I really want you to think about the fact that they, <laughs> they had a spare bedroom. They had another bedroom, which just had... Um, uh, well, they had four bedrooms, didn't they? Yeah, they they so they yeah they they had they had one room which they could have given him, um, which just had Dudley's overflow in it, and they put Harry in the cupboard underneath the stairs, and then they got caught out. They got a letter. Obviously, they knew who it was from. Basically, saying to Harry Potter in the cupboard under the stairs, like, we know what you've done. <laughs> And they're like, let's yeah. move him, let's move him. And then they get an equally spicy letter saying to the smallest bedroom. <laughs> Definitely. And it's things like at the very beginning of the book, uh, the the narration says, you, you know, you 
could be forgiven for thinking only one little boy lived here mm. because there are no photos of Harry or anything like that. He's he's quite effectively excluded. Yeah. So yes, he's given roof and board and food just about. Yeah, but he's also he's expected to do the cleaning, the cooking and stuff like that when it's, you know, it's Dudley's birthday and Harry is the one who's at the the hob making things, cooking yeah. things. Um he is an 11-year-old child. In fact, he's a 10-year-old child at this point. Yeah. He should not be standing unaccompanied at the hob making breakfast. <laughs> Even if you want to start your child cooking at that age, this this is not the situation. It's not that Petunia's there like, here, I'm going to teach you to make scrambled eggs. That's not, that's not what's happening. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know you can earn your keep because you're here under sufferance. Um uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm saying this as someone who took over the household ironing as soon as she was tall enough to just about see over the ironing board. And I think that was when I was about 10. Um, because both my parents worked a lot and they weren't really home. So someone it's sort of someone does something. Yeah, Someone has to get things done kind of thing. Um, but even if it's a case of yeah the child's contributing this is this is not you've earned your play i mean it is again it's the, the bella swan thing of you have to constantly feel like you're earning your place like so that you can't be left behind yeah. it's amazing that harry didn't end up with a massive abandonment complex to be honest because you know one set of parents dead his second set of parental figures clearly didn't want him kept telling him that yeah though um, I, I i feel he, sorry go on and i think the fact that he loathed them, loathed them so much that that actually kind of rescued him from feeling abandoned. Yeah, uh, but I do think that he developed a complex which made him feel like he has to do everything on his own, that he can yeah. only rely on himself. Even when he gets some very, very good friends, you know, he has that hero complex because he doesn't trust the adults in his life to get anything done. Um which I think is definitely something which has developed from his childhood. I mean, this is also a situation where they're essentially, they were going to send him off to school. Um, and, and from all accounts, it was not going to be a good school. It was more, a, we want to tuck you away out of mind and, you know, yeah. uh, thought sort of school. And he was really excited for it. Yeah. He was really because, looking forward to it. <laughs> because at least he'd be out of the house. Um so yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. And it one of the things you will learn at some point in your life is that ultimately nobody is coming to save you. So you better buck up and learn how to save yourself. If yeah. you're very unfortunate, you will learn that at a very very young age, um, which is obviously the case with Harry Potter and you know some real life people too. Yeah. Um, but it yeah you're you're right in that that then can translate into a i don't know how to ask for help i don't believe there's any help for me to ask for in the first place and you mm -hmm. know certainly for children adults are not to be trusted they're not actually there to to look after you or help you or anything yeah i think the other thing with harry potter is that people sometimes forget the fact that his abuse also meant that he was starved you know, there's a bit in one of the later books where he, where Dudley is on a diet because he um, is now morbidly obese. 
Yeah. Which and we've we've talked about the abuse of the of the Dursleys against Dudley. You know, that is sort of all linked into it. Um but Harry is put onto the diet as well. And Harry And given slightly less. <laughs> and given and given slightly less. Harry is underweight really and it's never explicitly said but in the way that he's kind of described he's underweight um he's small uh he's quite scrawny um and you know there's even one bit where ron just flat out says they were starving him mum you know they put him in a room they put bars on the window they bring him food (laughs) they literally make him a prisoner at one point um and the thing about also making harry a prisoner at one point in the second book is that um, he's basically also put in isolation. Yeah. Um, which is harrowing. That is a horrifying form of torture. He is a 12-year-old boy. So, in fact, he's not even 12. <laughs> he's an 11 about to turn 12-year-old boy. Um that is awful um and he's hungry all the time and in fact he he's so hungry when during his um during this sort of the starvation uh diet that that dudley is on that he actually writes to his friends and they send him sweets and things like that because he's that hungry and i want you to consider the fact that harry would have to have been really starving to actually reach out to his friends and ask for their help in that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah. <laughs> it's like there are many, many complicated layers of abuse in Harry Potter, definitely, yeah. across various different children. And, um, yeah, it is kind of played gently for laughs at times or in a very rolled doll sense where it's almost surreal. But yeah. it's very definitely in there. Um other things that can go on with grudging or unwilling parents touch starving or touch affection withholding where you know touch is actually one of the most sort of primal needs for humans we are a social species we are gregarious in nature most of us mm-hmm. and um most of us require a certain amount of physical contact with others of our species or failing that with other animals not in a weird way, just in a sort of like, we need that physical contact. Otherwise, we tend to start going slightly peculiar. Um, and so it's a particularly torturous thing to do to a child is to withhold affection unless you're getting something out of it you want, unless the parent figure is getting something out of it they want. So obviously we talked about Tangled. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is just, it it's a really, really disturbing thing to do. And I think... What's interesting to me is when people write this into fiction and only afterwards look back and say, oh, yeah, I put someone in there clearly being touch starved as a child because, you know, children should be should, children have the basic right to expect to be cherished. Yes. OK. And that, that includes being, you know, a certain amount of um, genuine good physical affection because that is some that is a basic necessity that is a, a basic right mm-hmm. um i'm thinking now of the this will be before your time madeline but the the orphans in rwanda who there were so many orphaned babies and so few people to care for them the orphanages were just full of these iron cribs with babies in them 
mm. who were losing developmental stages because they weren't being picked up and held and cuddled. Yeah. And, you know, the lucky ones were eventually adopted, but they were developmentally so far behind a child at that age. So, yeah, that's an extreme example of it. And it took a terrible war and basically an ethnic cleansing to actually cause that to come into effect. But there's been other examples in history. So on a small scale where that's happening in a household where there are parents and a child and the child's just been pushed to one side, that's something that will absolutely follow someone through their entire life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Have you seen the film, the French film, Amélie? Yes, I really love that film. Yeah. Um, There was always a bit in Amelie which got me, which is that her father is a doctor and her father essentially never really held her or touched her to the extent that when Amelie was a child, um, her father would give her these medical checks, these medical checks. um, And because this was the only time that her father actually touched her or, or sort of interacted with her in that way, she would she would get excited because this is this is her father this is her father showing her you know love um and her heart would race because she would be she'd be happy she'd be excited and he mistook this for her having some kind of heart condition yeah that always struck me as with a pang put it that way <laughs> yeah um it's it's sort of played off for a laugh but it's actually really <laughs> That hit me hard when I was a kid. I was like, oh my god. Um, it, that's it sort awful. of explains it explains her character a bit later on. The fact that she has this very strong sense of justice and you know is is quite willing to break the rules in order to see that people get what she considers justice mm-hmm. and yet at the same time has difficulty forming a physical relationship with people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other one with the with the sort of the touch starved thing is when you have a character who is touch starved and only gets positive contact when they have done something which is deemed to be good or or which pleases their parents yeah um this is a form of and again it might not actually be conscious but if you are only touching your child when you're congratulating them um, or you know when they've done something good that um, you're you're actually manipulating them, um, particularly you're conditioning them. You're ter- certainly conditioning them um, in a in a certain way. Um, now you might have a sort of a rewards kind of system where someone who's done something good might might get a you know a big cuddle and a big kiss. That's fine. Um, but that should not be the only time that you are touching your child. <laughs> you should be interacting with your child a fair amount, please. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, other things that sort of come under this are sort of constant correcting and micromanaging of child's actions and character. So the child spends their life feeling they're constantly at fault. Um, if you think about it, the things you actually need to correct your child on are anything that's dangerous, mm-hmm. anything that may have long-term ill effects on them, mm-hmm. and a certain amount of obedience is good because when you tell them not to run in the road, you want them to not run in the road. Yeah. Um, things of character, things like having a preference for looking at insects rather than wearing dresses, for example, 
or things like I want to play with the boys, I want to play football rather than I, I want to play with dolls. Mm-hmm. Those are those are preferences. Those are not things that require correction. That's where you let your child express themselves. Yeah, absolutely. In my opinion. Yeah, no, micromanaging what your child plays with, as long as, you know, you haven't walked in on with them and they're playing with a, you know, a knife or something like that, then I can kind of understand saying, no, let's let's not play with the knife. Why don't you play with this plastic egg or something like that instead? Unless, unless you're my father, in which case you get taught how to throw a knife properly. <laughs> yes, but I mean... <laughs> <laughs> It always it's makes useful, okay? It's, it's, it, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> it always makes me think of this of this image someone put up on the internet, which was just that I thought my wife was being paranoid when she bought all of the um, the plug covers. You know those those plastic covers yeah. which are really hard to get out, which you put into plugs. She said, "I thought my wife was being paranoid, but then I saw this that they took a picture, and their child was literally just licking the plastic covering, <laughs> and they were like, oh yeah. god.'" <laughs> Children will do some really weird stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, so, so I can understand. You know, there's a big difference between saying "stop playing with the stick with poo on it" um, and "go and play with one of the many expensive toys that we've bought you." Um, that's a very different thing from "no, you're not allowed to play with um, dolls. You should be playing with a football." Um, or "no, you're not going to get a chemistry set. You're going to get a." Um, a Barbie. Um, I was I was very lucky that when I when I was a kid and I was like I want a chemistry set. My dad's eyes sort of blazoned with life. He was like, oh, my daughter, my daughter is interested in science. I've I've been such a disappointment to him. He was like, yes, yes, I'm going to have scientists for children. And then and then my brother and I are both like, no, no, we're we're going to follow in our mother's step. We're going to go into the humanities. And he was like, I'm very proud of you, but at the same time, I wanted a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> it's like um i rem- when i was at primary school obviously i okay this will come as a real shocker to people when i was at primary school i didn't have a lot of friends i had this terrible habit of saying what i really thought even from a very early age which strangely enough doesn't make you very popular but all of that aside um when i was i think well i, was, I would have been five so i'd have been in the second second level in primary school i don't know what they call that anymore mm. it's receptions the first year and then it's year one maybe so maybe i'd have been year one by stay standards and there was a little boy who was just a little bit younger than me but young enough so that he was in the reception class so he was the year below me and he was about four and a half and i really was into my little ponies didn't like door didn't like doors i didn't like the doors not at four i didn't but i did when i got older um i didn't like dolls very much uh, but My Little Ponies were great and I used to take a couple to school with me and I'd play quite happily on the field by the hedges where the shield bugs and everything else were with the insects and my, my Little Ponies. And this little boy used to come and play with me. He was called Jonathan and we were good friends and then he had his own My, my Little Pony as well and he'd come and join in. And then my mum took me aside um, sometime later and I vaguely remembered seeing her talking to Jonathan's mum because I'd asked if he could come and play at my house and my mum on the drive home said I'm sorry but you're not allowed to play with Jonathan anymore and I was like well why and it's like well he shouldn't really be playing with my little ponies and I could tell at that moment that my mum didn't agree with what she was saying mm. and I realised that what had happened even at five I realised what had happened was that Jonathan's mum did not want him playing with 
girls' toys, inverted commas, um, and did not want a girl encouraging her son to play with girls' toys and had taken my mum aside and told her this. Yeah. And my mum had been forced into a situation where, to avoid trouble at school, uh, she'd had to take me aside and, and explain that I couldn't play with him anymore. And the same was being told to Jonathan. He wasn't allowed to play with me anymore either. Mm. So that kind of ended that friendship. And the fact we were in separate years probably helped their agendas a little bit. Mm. Her agenda anyway. Anyway, years and years and years later, when I was 14 or 15, I joined a drama club outside of school. And Jonathan was there. Jonathan was one of the theatre kids. Obviously, he was like way, way bigger. But he remembered me. And he sort of gave me this sheepish little wave. And we never talked about the My Little Pony situation. Hmm. Um, but it turned out he had a boyfriend. Now, I'm not saying that if you played with My Little Ponies that you were gay. But I am saying that he clearly was going down a certain path in his life anyway. Because that was the person he was. Yeah. And I can't imagine the level of of trauma and pain his mother imposed on him by trying to force him to take another one by micromanaging this. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it just... It makes me really sad, even to this day, to think about it when he's got to be in his 40s now, too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you you also see this, and I've seen this a lot um, growing up. I knew a lot of people who are in this situation of parents who micromanage because they want their kids to go down a certain path. Now, I made a joke just now about my dad wishing I'd been a scientist. Uh, my dad has never at any point made me feel ashamed about wanting to be a writer, about the path that me or my brother took. He has always been really, really supportive and proud. Um, the whole, oh, why couldn't you be a scientist thing is a joke um, that happens within the family, but we have never felt pressured to do that in the least. I have, however, known people who have basically from a young age been told they are going to be a doctor or yeah, they are going same. to be a lawyer or they are going to take over their, their parents' business or things like that. Um, and it's the kind of things you see in storybooks and you think, how could parents actually do this to people? But they do. And I've seen it happen. And the parents have micromanaged their kids. And sometimes they do it with the greatest intention. So, for instance, they've been told your, your child is gifted. They need opportunity. So the parent does everything they can to provide this opportunity without actually letting their child be a child. Um, and, you know, this means managing them not just to the levels of, OK, I understand parents having curfews and parents saying, right, there's certain bedtimes. I don't understand the right. Um, there is here's a standard and I'm going to be so strict about it and there's never going to be any leeway. And I don't want you hanging out with certain people and you can only you're only going to be allowed to continue doing this particular club so long as you're getting these grades, etc. Um, or you're going to have to quit all extracurricular activity until you have, you know, um, until you're back to getting an A star in everything. That frightens me. Um, and I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand. And consistently, every time I have seen it, I have seen situations where parents find themselves becoming strained from their kids. Kids rebelling, sometimes rebelling in such a way that they actually cause themselves considerable harm because actually they might have been interested in being a doctor, but being forced down that path is going to be very, very damaging. You should never force down anyone down any path. Um, and 
I have never seen a situation where it's ended well for anybody. Yeah, completely agree. Um, so yeah, anything from yes, you will do this career to you may not play with this person. Mm. Um, obviously, if it's obviously if it's somebody who y- you genuinely think will be a really bad influence, who you think I actually wouldn't trust you at that person's house mm. as a friend because I don't know what their parents would do to you, then you've got a good reason not to encourage that sort of thing. Yeah, no, there there is a situation where, for instance, you can actually see that someone is dangerous and that can be emotionally dangerous or or physically dangerous to your child where you might step in and your child might actually resent you for it um but you know (laughs) sort of certain decisions have to be made (laughs) in order to protect your child and again we're in a situation where as we talked about in the last episode you are a child's parent not their friend first and foremost yeah absolutely um last little bit on this section is having a constant background noise of you're not the son or daughter that I wanted. I didn't want someone who turned out like you. You're a disappointment. Um well or even sort of playing favorites with your children can be incorporated in this which is is very disturbing as well. Yeah. And my example for this and again guys I'm sorry I keep bringing up things that aren't released and you can't read yet but you know you will be able to from sort of September onwards with this. <laughs> um this this is kind of this entire sort of grudging or unwilling parent situation is Steve's situation obviously you meet him in the unveiled series you get much more of his backstory in Harker and Blackthorn yeah and um in two books time I really tackle that sort of side of things so I'm actually really looking forward to it I finally <laughs> so it's almost like <laughs> It's almost like I finally get to confront the some people who've done something terrible to someone I like. So um, <laughs> that's how I feel about it as a writer. But yeah, he's he's got this... Or you get little hints of it. And I think... Um, obviously, I'm biased since I write the books. I think that somehow getting the little hints, the hints in his behaviour, the occasional slips where he lets something go and Amy kind of picks up on it because thinks, oh, God, that's terrible... Um, is actually worse than hearing someone's long drawn out sob story about their their unhappy childhood Hmm. kind of thing and it's just yeah just he really really wasn't what his father wanted yeah that way and (laughs) he has internalized so much of what his father told him yeah Um, and it's been supported by some very cruel people growing up as well yeah definitely so you know it (laughs) <laughs> oh it breaks my heart i just cannot wait to uh, <laughs> to, to get my chance to sort of to, to live vicariously um as as i hope amy tells steve's father to to do something unpleasant um <laughs> i can't wait for you to read that book it's yeah. not written yet but i can't wait for you to read it Super excited. Really, i think you're really gonna enjoy it yes Um, Another example of this in something which has been released, um, Avatar The Last Airbender, you get this very much with the relationship between the Fire Lord and his daughter Azula and Zuko. Um, Zuko puts it very succinctly where he says, um, you know, uh, that Azula was born lucky um, and Zuko was lucky to be born. His father literally, you find out, um, wanted to kill him at birth 
because he took one look at Zuko and felt that he didn't have the spark in his eye that showed he was going to be a strong firebender, whereas Azula did. Azula was naturally strong, she had very good magic, she developed very quickly, whereas Zuko didn't. Um, And his father totally resented it and showed that resentment. And then on the other side of it is that Azula at one point, you do get this thing where she says her, she, she knew that her own mother thought she was a monster. And she looked, she took very much after her, um, her father. She was cruel. Um, she was manipulative and she got whatever she wanted because her father had let her get it. And she did not have a good relationship with her mother. In fact, you even see in a, a flashback that she runs off and her mother looks at her and goes, what is wrong with that child? Um, yeah. And I'm like, you cannot push responsibility there. She is your child. Um, but her mother clearly doesn't have the power to discipline Azula. And at this point, it's too late. The damage has been done. I also think there's, you know, there's some, it's not just, um, I think there might have been literally something Azula was born with as well, which has meant that she is, uh, she is sadistic. Um, but part of that is definitely going to have been uh, the way that she was raised and the way that her father favoured her. Whereas Zuko, of course, has this huge chip on his shoulder because he's spent his entire life being told what a disappointment he is. And he's essentially having been horrifically burned by his father, who who he, he was forced to fight his father when he was a child. And he, of course, he refused. And his father didn't refuse and literally burnt half of his face. Um... And then essentially sent him into what is essentially exile on a task that everyone up until that point knew was impossible. And that was the only way that he was ever going to be allowed to come home. And Zuko went into it with the full gusto of something which was possible because he didn't actually want to really address the fact that his father had basically just sent him out to essentially die. Yeah. That's scary. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I always think the thing with, I mean, I think there are uh, situations where a parent might understand one of their children better than the others or feel that that one child understands them better as well. Yeah. And that can be incredibly difficult because that can look like favouritism when actually it's just a case of, no, I love you all equally. It's just, I understand what that one's saying and the rest of you sound like you know, hobbits talking to Ents kind of thing. Yeah. You're talking very fast and I'm not following what you're saying at all. Yeah. It's, again, Avatar The Last Airbender did this, but they did it in The Legend of Korra where they actually looked at Aang as a father um, with his three kids. One of them was born a non-bender, one of them was born a waterbender, and only one of them was born an airbender. And... Uh, Aang, of course, was trying to recreate the clan of airbenders. This was his clan that had been completely destroyed. So he spent a lot of time with his airbender son, teaching him about airbending, going on trips, pilgrimages, and the other kids got left behind. And he loved them, but the fact of the matter was that they resented it um, because they felt like they weren't as important and there's this great bit where you know uh tenzin who is the airbender was like what about that time we went on holiday there and the others look at him and go that wasn't us that was just you and dad yeah and he has these great recollections of his childhood and has completely missed the fact that the rest of his family weren't there (laughs) yeah see it's darkly funny and then you reply it in real life it's like actually that's horrible it's awful (laughs) yeah 
Okay, moving on to active abuse. Um, this obviously is where the parental figure has moved beyond emotional abuse and neglect and manipulation into verbal, physical and even sexual abuse. Yes. Each of these is a gross betrayal of the child with sexual abuse, especially by a child's caretaker, being the absolute worst. Now, as we've said, we're not really going to touch on that too much simply because it's just beyond the scope of, of this podcast. Yeah. Um, but we're also not going to pretend that it isn't an issue that's there. Um, there are obviously many reasons that parents might do any of these things. And not all of them are as simple as this is just a bad person. Yeah. Um, I'm going to draw a line here, which basically say uh, any kind of sexual abuse, um, that's a bad thing. You are a bad person if you do that. Um but there are lots of reasons for why someone might abuse someone who's younger than them. Doesn't they're not necessarily good reasons, <laughs> but things can be complicated. Um, so we we do want to address that. But we are not in any way, shape, or form excusing child abuse on any level. No, absolutely not. Um, in terms of character development, which is obviously the angle we're coming from. Mm -hmm. It's the old adage, hurt people, hurt people. Um, parents who are hit as children often can or often can go on to hit their children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from a full-on spanking with a stick, they might go to just smacking them on the buttocks kind of thing. Yeah. When they've done something wrong. Um, and the, uh, where people tend to stand on smacking now, where I stand on smacking, I'd like to point out, is that, yes, it is actually a form of abuse. You're, you're teaching a child, you're hitting and humiliating a child. Mm. Um, you might be doing it for the purpose of discipline or because they frightened you by running in front of a car. Um, and I can certainly understand in that situation when a child frightens you that much, the, the need to lash out um, and, and give them a shock so that they don't ever do it again. I understand the inclination. I just don't agree with the means. Um, but... Put it put it this way, uh, when I was growing up, smacking was a thing. Mm. Okay, so, you know, me and my sisters, we were all smacked. And I'm not I'm not gonna roll out the whole sort of like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with me thing, because that's clearly not true. But I doubt <laughs> it was damage done by this particular thing. Um I think there's a difference between I'm not advocating smacking at all, by the way. Mm. But there is a difference between someone who has done it out of a moment of fear or or anger with fear uh, in order to deter you from doing something in the future. Yeah. And that they're not taking any pleasure in the actual act itself. And someone who sort of goes, you're smaller and weaker than me and I've had a bad day, I'm going to beat the shit out of you, which, you know, I've also seen Yeah. with um, other people, including people I was friends with at school. Yeah. There's a there's, there's two examples I, I want to give. One is a funny, uh, one's, a, one's a comedian, um, and the other one is someone who put the whole smacking things thing into stark um you know relation of exactly what it is um it always makes me think of a of a sketch by a uh, french moroccan comedian called gad almale um who's brilliant by the way you can find him on netflix i do recommend watching him in french with subtitles rather than watching him in english because he can speak in english but his delivery in french is just fantastic he's really really funny we saw him live he's just brilliant um and he he makes this great sketch which he, he says people always say you should never hit your child in anger never never hit your child when you're angry he says so what do you do you just wait and you just wait until 
wait till everyone's on the beach. Everyone's having a good time. You, you've been saving it up. And then whoosh, that's when you start. Um, so that always gets me. It's like, never hit your child in anger. Well, when, you, when, when do you hit your child then? Um, it's like, if you don't smack them when they, they've done the, the bad thing. Um, I don't think he was actually advocating smacking children at all. Um, I think no. that was just a joke. Um, but the the one that always gets me is this story, which hit me so hard when I first saw it. And I cannot remember where it came from, but it was um, a woman. And I think she was in, she was from the south of Asia, I think, but I might be wrong. And she had always been raised that when she did something wrong, her mother would send her out into the garden where she would have to find a stick or a switch, basically, um, bring it back in, and she would choose the stick which her mother then hit her with, which her mother then whipped her with. Um, And she didn't want to do that with her child, but then her child did something very dangerous, I think it was, um, or very, very bad. And so she sent her child out. She she fell into that ritual, which is... I know that that stopped me doing things when I was a kid and this is all I can think of to do. So she sent her child out to do it and she was feeling sick at this point because she didn't want to do it. And her child came back in in tears and said, Mummy, I cannot find a stick, but I found a rock that you can throw at me instead. And she just fell to her knees and cried and cried as her, as her child held up this rock. Yeah. And she she it came into sharp focus there which is that her child is not seeing right I need to be disciplined. Her child has basically just seen all she's seeing is mummy has decided she's going to hurt me and I have to go I have to go with it. Um and there's no distinction of what that kind of pain is or what that pain means or what's just and what isn't just. Um and when you see it from that perspective um it's horrifying. And I think that even if you yourself were smacked as a child, because smacking was also still a thing when I was a kid, um, that was that was still a very normal thing that, that happened among sort of parents. Um, even remembering it now, uh, I might dismiss it, but you have to think of it from a child's perspective not from the perspective of an adult who has a different kind of context because context means excuse my language but jack shit in that moment because it's not a child it's not an adult who's going through this it's not an adult who understands it is just a child and it's a child's trauma and it's a child who has to go through it um yeah yeah and that that story always strikes me it always makes me tear up because it's just so so harrowing yeah and i think that is a good point is the fact that you know after a certain point um with you know with smacking for discipline Mm. um there there is no context or you know you start with no context and after a certain point the child either just becomes hardened to it in which case it's not discipline anymore it's just a kind of well i take my lumps Mm. and best case scenario you end up as somebody who thinks yeah i'm not going to do that to any children myself yeah. Um, a worst case scenario, you end up thinking that it's okay because you've learned to hit people from being hit. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't think it's an effective form of, of discipline. No. That it, <laughs> it also is that people don't think about the fact that it's a form of trauma. My, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. My mother, 
my mother when she was a little girl in France they would ha- they had this um the these heaters that or this stove which would give off heat to um to, I think to warm up the whole house and they wanted to teach my mother not to try and open the drawers not to try and open the the, the oven or things like that uh, because she would be horrifically burned if she did and they didn't want yeah. her to get close but the way they did this was that they took her hands and they put it close to the heat slowly so that she would feel the heat until it was basically burning her fingers and she was terrified and really really scared and screaming and things like that and they thought this is an effective lesson she will now she's afraid of it now she will now never reach for it and burn herself and she didn't she never did burn herself and then years later and she didn't even realize she didn't figure out why she did this. She was scared to do the cooking. She really struggled to do things in the kitchen. She really struggled to use the oven and stove because there was something inside of her that prevented her from doing it. And because of that, she never really got into cooking in the same way that like her mother had, even though I think she would have, she it would have been something she enjoyed. And I'm not saying my mother was a terrible cook or anything like that. She could cook, um, but she never developed that love. She never spent the time in, in the kitchen that my grandmother did, not because it was her place to be, but because she genuinely liked making delicious and wonderful food. Um, because there was that fear, that fear of, of the oven, which which stayed with her into being an adult. And the worst thing was the other adults in the house mocked her for it. They laughed at her for being afraid of touching it, for being afraid of getting to it, um, and never really considered the fact that they were the ones who introduced that trauma. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. You might not remember it because if it happens when you're very young, you might not remember it. But Mm. what you're doing with a child when you do something like that is you are creating a psychological complex it's how yeah. we toilet train children, except that that does actually have a use. Yes. <laughs> and hopefully you don't do it in a way that is is very traumatic. Now, yes. I don't want to go down the Freud route here, but no, basically... let's 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 don't don't awaken Freud. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so back back to the topic. Uh, sometimes substance abuse can play a part in physical and verbal abuse. Mm. Um, and often there's something wrong with the parent internally, something they haven't addressed or fixed. And it can go hand in hand with a form of narcissism, i.e. the need to impose control and prove that they are real. Often it, it kind of goes hand in hand with that micromanaging of the child as in I need to prove that you can make the grade because it reflects on me as a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's an entire toxic tangle there. Yeah, and so, it, um, it might even within their twisted mind comes from a place of of what of love. They might be saying, "I'm doing this for you for your own good. I'm trying to yeah. protect you. I'm trying to give you the opportunities I didn't have. I'm trying to prevent you from going down a path that I did, um, and I'm going to physically enforce that." It can also yeah. happen as a form of PTSD. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I always think of. Uh, Patrick Stewart talking about his father. Um, Patrick Stewart has obviously been very, very vocal for a very long time about, you know, a sort of anti um, abuse sort of campaigns, particularly for 
women in abusive relationships because his, his father abused his mother. And as he got older, he started to learn a little bit more about what his father had been through in the war. Um, and now his father never hurt him or his brother. I don't think it was only ever his mother. Um, but seeing someone that you love be abused is also kind of a form of abuse. Uh, particularly if you're watching your mother be abused or your father or, you know, a parental figure or an older sibling, you are also part of a circle of abuse um, because that's a terrifying thing to see. Um, and it's, it's an awful situation to be in. Um, and his father was reacting in this way. His father was acting out and his mother never complained because his father was going through horrific PTSD. That does not excuse his, his behavior, but it explains it. And if yeah. his father had had the help that, that he needed, this might have been prevented or it could have yeah. been addressed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the final little <laughs> seed on this very, very toxic cake, mm -hmm. um, bullying. Bullying or the permissiveness of bullying by somebody in the child's immediate circle by the child's caretakers also falls into this category. That can sometimes mean that you're turning a blind eye to an older and possibly more favoured sibling uh, bullying a younger sibling. It can mean you turn a blind eye because uh, it's your mother or your father bullying your child um, and you don't want to have to deal with them. Yeah. That's, I've seen, you know, that happen too. Um, so something like that. And yeah, it, I, obviously bullying again, it, it, constant fault finding is obviously a type of bullying. So that can, you can have literally the same effect as someone who grows up with severe physical abuse mm -hmm. from, from just this constant barrage of why can't you be more like your sister or why can't you do this? Why can't you be more like me? That's not the right way to do this. And, and you know, because a child looks to the adults in its life for approval, to uh, certainly from an early age, so that the child actually knows that it's heading in the right direction. Yeah. So if all you're getting from your uh, from the adults in your life, no matter what you do, is is negative feedback, then you come to this idea that you are fundamentally wrong. There is something fundamentally wrong with you, and it can't be put right. And unfortunately, religion can play a really large part in this as well. So if that, had, if that it's, it's one leg of the tripod. Mm. So, you, you know, you've got the family, lack of family approval, you've got the dismissiveness or the neglect, and then you've got occasionally religion in there as well. And everything is telling you that you are wrong. Yeah. So religion and culture can be things of great comfort and can be you know an important part of your life and your family dynamic but they can also be things which alienate and contribute to abuse within the family as well definitely so while all these things are horrible to contemplate when you're building a character it <laughs> it can add a fascinating layer to a character arc <laughs> i realize that sounds really flippant after talking about what we've just talked about but, no, it's just like, now, these are all horrible. How do you put them into your writing? 
<laughs> I'm afraid that is the thing. This is the thing with being a writer. Being a writer is having a nightmare, waking up in the middle of the night and thinking, that was terrible, I feel awful, it's staying with me, my heart's still going, what book can I squeeze that into? Yeah, okay? exactly. <laughs> this, is the, this is the most harrowing experience of my life or the most harrowing experience I can think of. I need to share it with the world. Um, yes. And to so be honest, it, I think there would be a lot of books which would be very, very boring if they did not have these dynamics and these situations within them. And obviously exploring these things means that through fiction, a lot of people who are perhaps dealing with internal wounds they may not even really know are there might actually make some progress. Yeah, it can be very cathartic. Absolutely. So you might want to think about things like, will your character go on to perpetuate this cycle of harm? Um, Mm -hmm. Will they have ongoing trust issues? Will they have an abandonment complex? Uh, Will they manage to break the cycle? Will they always act recklessly under certain stimuli without necessarily even knowing why? Because they've been conditioned to having an odd crisis response. Um, My obvious example would be from Unveiled, for myself, it would be Kieran, who had an awful um, childhood... (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, you know, very, very abusive father and a mother who couldn't really protect him from a lot of it. Yeah. And just getting to adulthood and not being able to form a... Not not being able to form a strong relationship with anyone. Mm. Not being able to form um, anything that was approaching intimacy. Mm. And there, there's a lot more to it, but... The way he acts throughout the books, yes, sometimes he's a real dick, guys, he really is. <laughs> but it's because of this. It, it's not to say, oh, I had a horrible childhood, you must all pity me. It's kind of like, no, this is here and you haven't addressed it yet. Yeah. Not all of it. It's 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 not a free pass, um, but it, it is an explanation. Um, I think uh, on my side of things, um, I've always tried to write fairly kind of... Um, interesting family dynamics so even with the the families in my books who who are loving and have healthy sort of relationships for instance Rufus with his mother and his sorry his stepmother and his father he's very close with them both but the fact of the matter is is that his father lied to him his entire life for his protection but he still lied to him um and he and Rufus despite making his peace with it um, has a bit of an abandonment complex when it comes to his birth mother who as far as he is aware just basically kind of went I don't want you and left him behind and never made any attempt to contact him and when he finds out the truth that hasn't really changed um you know, even even as he finds things out that it might have not been, that it might have been reluctant, that it might have been sad, that she might have still cared for him and thought about him, there's still an abandonment there because she could have made a different choice and she didn't. Yeah. Um, so these are all things that he has to deal with. But Zachary, of course, Zachary has a, just a, an incredibly abusive family. His mother is uh, willfully... She, she's she's a, she is a literal psychopath um she doesn't physically abuse him but she absolutely hates him um she has never helped him she has ne- she sometimes has just watched what's happened to him um because he has been he's he was often abused as a child 
to try and get a raise out of his mother. His father would try and get a raise out of um, her name was her name's Elizabeth de Morn. He would try to get a raise out of her by abusing Zachary right in front of her. Um, and both were kind of a little bit disappointed where she just when she just didn't really care. And his father wanted to control Zachary, um, his father who had also been horrifically abused. And this is also one of these situations where the father, when um, uh, Rivelin Zachary was a child, he, his father was a magi. And his father was so disappointed that Rivelin didn't have enough magic to become a magi as well. So he would actually bring Rivelin out in front of his magi friends and beat him in front of them and shame him in front of them. And Rivelin has always hurt Zachary. And this escalated because he feels like Zachary basically told him to escalate it. And Zachary was trying to manage him, so he put him back in his place. But Rivelin has basically vowed that he will never beat Zachary in front of anyone else. For him, this is a form of kindness. That he he will, he, what happens between him and Zachary will, will stay between him and Zachary only, and that he will never embarrass Zachary in that way, and that he will let Zachary go off and be a Magi, and that he's kind of proud that Zachary's a Magi, whilst also being very jealous of the fact that he's a Magi. Um, and it's very complicated, and he's a bad man. <laughs> he's a bad person. Um, and of course, this has had a very profound effect on Zachary and on his relationship with his sisters, on his relationship with other people, and the fact that he has essentially basically said, I will never be a father. Um, I can't be a father um, because I don't trust myself, um, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So, something. yeah. <laughs> Something I may have to tap. Well, something I may be tackling in the future. Um, <laughs> not, with, not with your character. No, no. She's just going to take Zachary. And like, yes, right. She's going to take him, put him in therapy. Um, he could use some therapy. Um, I should think so too. It's the cannibalism. It's the else. cannibalism. Yeah, is is a bit of an issue. Um, okay, we'd be a bit remiss if we tackled this subject and didn't look at opposite gender conflict. Now, yes. this isn't an unusual thing. So. It, it's not unusual for mothers and daughters to at least go through a phase of just not getting on together mm. in the same way as it's similar for fathers and sons. So to a certain extent, it is normal. And it might be that for whatever reason, you're a daughter who never really gets on with your mother, even though, you know, once you've got some distance, you get on just fine, but mm -hmm. you just, you, you're never really going to be on the same wavelength. Yeah. Um, the problem that, this can cause is that you can have a child who feels closer to one parent than another and this causes bitter conflict with the other parent mm. yeah it's it's also it, this is also potentially exacerbated exacer mm. my speech is good today exacerbated <laughs> if the parents then are put in a situation where they have to divorce yeah. Um, or uh, uh, sort of are separated or particularly as well if this is, there is a situation where two where two parents actually the parent and child understand each other more so we talked about them sort of speaking the same language as it were um, this can all add to that sense of uh, favoritism on on the child's part which might not be intentional but might also be intentional <laughs> 
Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because um, parents are not supposed to have favourites and it's generally condemned. Mm. But no one says that about children. Mm. A child can absolutely have a fa- favourite parent or grandparent or caretaker. Yeah. And would never even necessarily consider how that might look or feel to someone else because you're a child and as you're growing up you're kind of the centre of your own universe that's normal yes yeah absolutely and I have to say in that situation it's not even on the child to fix it that's something again that that the adults in the room need to actually be tackling not the child yeah also, I think it, it's a little bit different when a child has a favourite, if that makes sense, because the the ch- because it doesn't actually denote any less amount of love. <laughs> you could st- you can you can love people equally, but still have a favourite because a child's favourite will be based on some very particular things. You know, yes. <laughs> we like the same dinosaur. We like the same dinosaur. They're my favourite. They always give me sweeties. You know, things like that. That that doesn't mean that. <laughs> It's no less precious. You cannot trust a child's judgment. They're a child. <laughs> of course, they're going to have favourites. They'll have favourite pajamas and stuff. Like- oh, to be honest, we might very well also, as adults, have favourite pajamas. But you know, it's it's a different. You know, it's a different situation entirely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so our final section: not all harm is intentional. Yes. Um, so we've we've touched on this, um, but let, let's get into the sort of the depths of it. Um, uh, it is hard to be a parent. Um, and no matter what you do, you could have the perfect parenting plan. You will do harm without meaning it. Um, you might have things in your own makeup that you're not even conscious of until you actually have a child. Um, and just like you... You could also have issues that you don't even know about until you get into a serious relationship with someone. Yeah, it's weird how changing your interpersonal relationships to a more intense setting can actually bring up trauma that you'd forgotten about or trauma that you didn't even realise was going to cause you problems down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's just one of those things where... as I said, you could have the perfect plan. You could think, I know exactly what I'm going to do. But here's, here's the thing is, it's very easy to imagine how you're going to raise your child. Um, it's a completely different thing to actually raise a human being. Because yeah. they are, you will quickly find that real human beings, particularly young children, are not as pliable as your imaginary children they don't immediately stop crying the moment you start singing a lullaby Um, they don't immediately love the things that you think that they're going to love Uh, they don't immediately do the things that you assume they're going to do or that they'll react to the things Um, and also there are going to be things which are out of your control as well you know as a parent there are going to be things that might traumatize your child that you never intended to traumatize them and when i talk about trauma i don't mean that someone might have physically hurt them but i mean there are things that could happen that you might have no idea about um they might have you know seen something on tv they might have um accidentally fallen out of their crib um I'm going to give you a fun example from my childhood. 
I climbed out of my bed every night, out of my crib, as a baby. I would literally throw myself up to the top, climb out, and then toodle off, and I'd go get into my parents' bed. And my parents got a little bit tired of this because I never slept, and they were really tired. So they discovered they could actually lower the mattress in my crib, and they thought, haha, if we just make the crib walls a little bit higher, she won't be able to get out. Um... That night, I didn't cry once, very unusual, didn't scream. I was deadly silent the whole night. And they were like, oh, well done. Uh, we were living in Syria at the time. And uh, there, was, there was a certain time in the morning when there was just always a power cut. So my mother comes in to pick me up that morning and she's and I'm standing there looking at her and everything's dark and she can't really see me and she's sort of praising me. Oh, what a good girl I've been. And oh, well done. I slept the whole night through. And she picks me up. She takes me outside where my dad is because there's no power, he's he's cooking on the barbecue outside. And he takes one look and goes, my God, what has she done to herself? And my mother looks at me and my entire face is black. I've got this huge black eye because I had tried to climb out of the bed, but the wall was higher. So when I jumped, instead of, you know, getting the end, which is what I'd expected, I knocked myself unconscious. Oh God. <laughs> Neither of my parents could have planned for this, but that didn't change the fact that I never got out of that. I never tried to get out of that bed again. <laughs> well, I guess it was kind of a learning experience. It was a massive kind of. learning experience. I mean, they raised the mattress again because they were like, oh God, we're going to kill this child accidentally. But I never tried again. I never, ever tried again. I never left my room at night and went to their, <laughs> their bedroom. So I guess in that way, it was a very positive, positive trauma for their, for their part. But... <laughs> It didn't change the fact that they couldn't have planned for that. They just couldn't. So there are things which are going to happen to your child which you cannot plan for, um, which are are going to shape them. And there are things that you are not conscious of which are going to come out in your parenting style. And again, you know, I gave that example earlier on about, you know, let's say you were raised super religious. And so you've totally rejected that. And through the rejection of all these religious things, perhaps you've rejected certain forms of structure. And then your child basically says, I want, I needed more structure growing up. No matter what you do, your child is going to be affected by it negatively in some way or another. They're going to want more of something or less of something. That is inevitable. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Because when people say, I'm going to do differently by my children, I mean, yes, it's an extension of the not I but thou sentiment that parents genuinely should have. But mm. I think parents who go in with a definite plan kind of go in and they're thinking back to their own childhood and thinking of raising themselves, When whereas what they get is not someone who's like them. They get a completely new person they don't know at all. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, guess yeah, what? Guys, it's not you, a one-size-fits-all solution. <laughs> your baby is a stranger when they first come into the world. <laughs> they don't know you. You don't know them. Uh, they as, don't as know themselves. It's <laughs> a complete sidebar. I would like to put... I mean, I'm not a parent and I've got no intention of becoming one, but I do want to put a punt in for, you know what, when you're trying to stop your child doing something... Even if they're very, very small, try just explaining to your child why not. Because I would have not done so many things if my parents had just told me. I had an incredibly good linguistic grasp at young age. I just didn't have the vocabulary. So I mm. couldn't say what I meant, but I understood what was going on. And I'm thinking of things like, 
um, when my first sister came along, I was 13 months old and I'd been sort of, I think at sort of 14, 15 months old, I was moved into an actual bed mm-hmm. um, with a with a bar on the side of it. And my sister was in the same room in a crib. And I used to get out of bed in the night. I'd climb over the bar on the side of my bed and I'd climb into her crib and I'd cuddle up with my sister. And obviously this made my parents very anxious because, you know, what if I accidentally smothered her or something? Mm-hmm. And instead of taking me aside and just saying we need you to stop getting in with your sister at night, which, okay, I can understand why many people would not explain that to a one and a half year old. Mm-hmm. What they did was they put a piece of MDF across the top of the crib so that it kind of had a lid. Um, this did not put me off at all. I just thought, oh, it's another obstacle. So I'd <laughs> climb over the bar on my bed, I'd climb up the side of her crib, I'd lift up the MDF, I'd get in and I'd lift the MDF back on on top. <laughs> and they would get in in the morning and find the crib with its makeshift lid on top and me cuddled up with my sister. So <laughs> really, I mean, I mean, I've talked to my mum about it since then. And she said, you know what, if we knew everything we knew now, we'd go back and we'd raise you completely differently. Because clearly you just needed to be given a set of instructions and a decent reason why not to do something. Yeah. And that's the thing is, my mother always said it. Children do not come with instructions. Um, and I've also seen lots of situations where um, younger siblings will have an easier time of it in some respects. Um, yeah. Some people say, oh, you know, the elder sibling, there's lots of pictures of, of, of the elder sibling. And then as you go down, there's less pictures because it's like, oh, it's the younger one. We've kind of already been through that. Um, but then there's also the opposite, which is that, you know, I know that I benefited a lot from the fact that my parents got to have like a testing period with my brother before they got to me. Um, I also know that that meant jack shit, however, because my brother was an angel. He was the sweetest, cutest child ever. Really well behaved. Every day he would come downstairs having read the children's encyclopedia and, and, and regale my parents with all the new things that he'd learnt and he slept through the night and he was balmy and had lovely little dimples and smiles and was very, very sweet and I was the devil. I cried and I screamed and I never slept and I fussed and I was just awful a terrible demon monster child so everything they thought my mother literally said that she had my brother and thought this is easy i don't know what all these people are complaining about and i was sent as punishment for her hubris so um that's the other thing is that not you can think oh well we've had experience because we've had one child before but there is no guarantee that the second child or the third child will be anything like the first there's just no way of knowing because you are raising a human being not a simulation yeah um and this brings us to the fact that we are talking in oxymorons now but the both these statements can be true your parents can make choices out of love and concern and care and those choices can still harm you as we said Um, the purpose of being a caretaking adult is to be a parent first and a friend about third or fourth on the list Mm. Um, when children grow up you may then become very good friends but that should be sort of as equals later on that shouldn't be your modus operandi Um, i've always kind of thought one of my sisters has the right idea in the sense of her approach is that obviously adore my children but our purpose as parents is to prepare them to live without me to prepare them to leave 
So not in a kind of, I'm going to push them out the nest early or anything kind of way. <laughs> out you go. <laughs> out you go, magpie style. Um, no, just in a, just in, in the sense of what you should be doing as well as enjoying the fact that you have children and occasionally cursing the fact that you have children is, is sort of giving them space to learn who they are and to try things and become independent not yeah. to not to encourage them to cling too much obviously it depends yeah. on the child as well yeah um, but as we've said yes a certain amount of fucking up is inevitable as a parent yeah you might also be put in a situation where you actually have to pick the lesser of two evils um yes. i again from my personal perspective my schooling has left a very profound effect on me for a number of reasons well one was going to a missionary school which left a very long-lasting effect for a number of reasons um, but also just my schooling the schooling choices that my parents had to make had a very very big effect on me um, which has changed the person that I am now and I cannot say that all of that was positive um, some of it was there was some very big negative bits which resulted in things which could have been avoided but I look at what their alternative choice was at the time and I can totally understand and appreciate and even be thankful for the choice they made even though it did hurt me even though there are things which have happened to me which I will never be able to fully lay to rest um, yeah. I can turn around and say the alternative was worse and that this was a decision they made with all the best intention and with all the love in their heart. Um, their singular heart. It's <laughs> the one between them. Very large, the hearts uh, with an S. Uh, my parents didn't mould into a single being. Um <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> very very Poe-esque childhood there for a moment. Um, yeah, so, okay, a brief recap. Uh, we've obviously talked a little bit about our own work, but I'll talk about how we've used parents to shape characterisation in our own work, because obviously we're coming from the writer perspective. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I think in the last episode, um, yeah, apparently I have not shown a functional set of parents at any point in my work at all. <laughs> No. so there's that um i do show people getting better though so for example in unveiled um their father does actually start to improve i wouldn't say he ever becomes father of the year but he absolutely no. does conquer a few things and work on himself yeah um this is a tentatively trying to to sort of fix things up and actually ends up being an actual father figure yeah, um, which is good. He actually ends up teaching Emmeline things, and you know, and, and the others things, which which actually helps sort of save their lives on a few occasions. So yeah, absolutely. Um, as I good said, on you, Reverend Matthews. <laughs> I kind of can't wait to tackle Steve's family because I just it's going to be so much fun. Which sounds awful because they're <laughs> they're not great people at all. They're, his his childhood was horrible. In, yeah. in 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 a way it was as bad as Kieran's but just not in the same way. Yeah, it's a different form of abuse. Yeah. Uh, I've mentioned obviously Rufus and Zachary um and I think people can very clearly understand how their childhoods have affected them. 
Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Kestrel. People have only really encountered Kestrel in one short story up to this point, which is Kestrel and the Kryptonites. Um, first book of Kestrel will come out at some point, I promise. Um, but within this story, Kestrel has, she has a father whom she's very protective of and she loves very fiercely. Um, and her, she has an absent mother. Now, everyone would think that it's the absent mother which has had the big, biggest effect on her. It has not. Um, without giving too many spoilers, there's a situation whereby Kestrel literally does not care that her mother is not there. She has essentially just basically forgotten that a mother is a thing. Um, but her father, the, the abandonment her father feels has had an effect on her. So she can see the pain that he's in, the depression that he's in. Um, and he has made certain choices about her and rejected some of the things that she's gone through, which has meant that even though Kestrel has a really solid relationship with her father, she very often does not talk about what she's going through. So Kestrel's secretive. She's incredibly secretive. She doesn't talk about what's bothering her. She tends to like to just tackle things on her own instead of, uh, or, or within very, very small circles. Um, to the extent that, you know, she she gets given some rather scary news at the, at the end of book one, which I'm not gonna get into, which she doesn't tell anybody. <laughs> She's just there like, well, I'm just gonna tuck that into my pocket. Um, and there's a bit in the second book where she goes through something really traumatic and she basically just stands in and she goes through a process which she's done several on several occasions where she literally just nails all the trauma into a coffin puts it to the back of her mind and her and the way that she deals with this is that she literally says i probably won't live long enough to have to deal with it so it's okay yeah which is um, not great <laughs> that's not a healthy way of doing it and it's basically because she came from a, a background with a very very loving father who when she told him magic exists he shouted at her he told her to put it away. He got worried and scared um, and she could see that it uh, it upset him and she didn't want to upset him. So she stopped talking about it. And of course, the problem is that a lot of the trauma that she goes through has to do with magic. So she stops talking about it to people. Um, she also went through something very traumatic before the beginning of the book, which is that she had this terrible accident and she saw how much it worried her father again and how much it worried her friends and so she just doesn't talk about it so this is a situation with a parent who is really loving and who she does get on with um but he has put her in a situation where she cannot healthily deal with any form of trauma she literally just goes well i'll deal with this later but i won't have to because i'll probably be dead before i have to deal with it that's that's her strategy and at the moment it's still a little bit tongue-in-cheek but as the series progresses she's not going to be able to keep doing that yeah yeah definitely um so fun times ahead guys from fun both times, of us yes <laughs> we're gonna have some good times guys <laughs> You will find out things about Mel's parents as well when I, when that series finally launches. So. Yes, I know certain things. <laughs> I have I have uh, writer's friends' privileges. Yes, exactly. Okay, um, so that is the end of 
well, this this is the end of us examining how parents can shape characters in speculative fiction. Yes. For now, at least. Do let us know. Do you think we've missed anything important? Um, do you think we've missed or we haven't handled certain things? Um, do you agree with us? Do you disagree with us? Do you have any great examples of this that we haven't talked about? Please, we'd love to hear from you. Remember, you can get in touch with us via our Facebook, our Twitter, or our Tumblr, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. Before we go, however, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, you've got another one for us, I believe. Yes, uh, I've just finished reading, well, I say reading, listening to the audio arc of The Desert Prince by Peter V. Brett. Now, I have to confess, I haven't read The Demon Cycle yet, uh, which was his original series. Mm -hmm. This is a spin-off slash sequel series, and it features the children of the heroes of The Demon Cycle. Okay. And it's set sort of 15 years afterwards. Having said that, I believe that you could go into this book and just read it from here and not, not worry about the original series um, because it, it tells you what you need to know and you get a new set of characters and you sort of follow them. Mm -hmm. I have to say this, it, it was an amazing book and it was it was such a sort of, I just thought, well, they've sent me an audio arc, I must get through it because I absolutely, you know, the privilege of being sent an audio arc means that I, I always push myself even if I'm not sure of the book. But I was hooked. I was hooked from the beginning. Uh, the main character is Princess Olive. Olive is intersex. She has both fe female and male body, um, fe female and male genitalia, and she is capable of both fathering a child and giving birth to one. And we know this because she, when she hits when she hits teenage years, she starts having periods and things. So you know, it's all very openly discussed. It's no spoiler to say that. But she she initially identifies as female. She's referred to as she, her, etc., princess, and she always feels that there's something just slightly out of reach. And you follow her on what turns out to be sort of this inherited war from her 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 parents and you know other people as well. Um, the other viewpoint character is Darren, who is having other issues in the sense of. He's the son of a great demon slayer and mm -hmm. um, he's a bit of a disappointment. He's a jongleur and he, it, you know, has a few things that are a bit odd about him as well. And he just genuinely feels that the shoes are too big for him to fill. So uh. this is a book about identity. And what's really interesting to me is that while mo much of the journey is kind of internal, it's following Olive as she works out the fact that she is in fact both male and female all the mm -hmm. time. That she can be referred to as he and brother and it means the same as her for her as she and her and princess and sister. And that she can be someone's sister and refer to them, be referred to as their sister and also be their brother in arms. Mm -hmm. And she had both those identities are hers to claim. So a lot of it is this struggle to find a way not to be shoved in little boxes that everyone else wants to put her in because they don't really understand her being intersex in this way. Yeah. Uh, so it's really, really interesting. Um, that's not all of it, obviously. There is a demon war going on. There are attacks <laughs> and battles and training sessions and um, sweaty men fighting each other, you know. So there's oh, lots of good you, stuff You sure in know the way to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and yeah okay there is even a romantic subplot but guys don't just just go in and sort of like put some concrete around your heart on this one because he will bitch slap <laughs> you in it honestly <laughs> um it's an, it's an amazingly good book it is i don't know what the original demon cycle is like i've heard people say that oh, they had problems with x y and z but um this was great this was in, really really intelligently done and whether you agree with the sort of conclusions that are pushed forward by the end of the book or not i think it's done in a really sensitive way and it's a great piece of fantasy as well okay fantastic thank you very very much um that sounds really really interesting i'm definitely gonna have to check it out and on that note guys we're gonna say thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.